But yeah, at the post office this morning, I had, I mean, there's nothing to fit this, uh, the award that we were sending to Jennifer, to Jennifer for winning our contest. Um, what were the, the dimensions of it, by the way? 16 by 20. 16 by 20. That's, That's so large. weird. Yep. So and you, so, did you buy something there and then cut it up and cover up the painting? With okay. It? So at first I mailed, I had everything else ready to go from here mm-hmm. and I put those in the mail. I just got, because they needed a little extra postage and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I got that done. But then I realized, like, when I was waiting in line to mail those, I, I was hoping they'd just have, like, a huge, like, bubble mailer or, you know, something like that that I could throw this thing in. But that was not the case. It wasn't even close. <clears throat> so then I was trying to figure it out. I honestly didn't know what I was going to do. So I'm talking to the lady. I'm like, how do I put this thing in the mail? It's super important, you know. Are you and walking then, around <clears throat> the painting at this point? Yeah, I have just the painting <laughs> in my hands. I mean, oh, man. Claire, I took my, when I, you know, being a seminarian. You popped the tabs. So. I, yeah, I didn't have my tab in, but I'm in all black. So <laughs> if that kind of sets the scene. So you're dressed like the computer nerd. I'm dressed like the computer nerd, all black. Um, and so I go get this at the, at the, um, lady at the counter, her suggestion, I go get this box that it's a pretty big box. I don't know what the dimensions of it were going to be, but like when you buy them there, they're folded down. They're not like in box form, you know? And, uh, so I just, I just use that. Like I don't make it into a box, but like just kind of leave it flat Mm -hmm. and I get some bubble wrap and I wrap up the painting. Okay. And then where I really felt like an idiot was that you can't like close this thing. So I had to buy a bunch of tape and I would just use like, and I was just going to town like on this box with this tape, like over and over because it was going to fall out if I didn't, you know? So I'm in the middle of the post office. People are going to show up at somebody's house. It's a tiny post office too. It's a super tiny post office. And there's just a big desk in the middle. So there's no, nowhere. Yep. Where were you working in the corner? No, I was just working at the desk thing. People were going around me, you know? (laughs) And I was wrapping this thing up with uh, tape. Then I get it all done, finally. And I get up to the counter. I'm like, okay, well, I need to put this in the mail now. And she's like, okay, great. She's Did you explain? Nice. This is for an award winner for our podcast. They, <laughs> no, they won get, our award. I'll get to that in a minute. It gets funnier. Um, <laughs> so I didn't say anything about the painting then. And, uh, so I then she's like, okay, well, where is, where is it going? So I look at the address. I'm like, oh, it's going to Canada. Well, that just opened a whole nother can of worms because now it's international, like, package shipment. So she gives me this freaking just huge thing to fill out that I have to, like, write exactly what it is and all this stuff. Oh, because it. it has to go through customs. Because it has to go through customs. And uh, so anyway, I get the address label filled out, like, put that on. But then I'm filling out this customs form. And at the bottom, so I write, like, to describe it, I write homemade painting. That's what I went with. <laughs> And then it wanted the. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else to do, and uh, but then it wanted the dollar amount that it was worth, and I, I priceless. Did you I put priceless? Ser- no, I didn't. I almost put like five hundred thousand dollars, dude. Amazing. Like but I went with the more honest answer, which was zero dollars on there. And at that point, when I took it back up. <clears throat> The lady like looked at what I had written and she laughed and she was like, <laughs> wait, did you just paint this for someone? I was like, yeah, you know, my friend did. We're mailing it to um, a person who won a contest. And 
And then she started laughing more. She was like, and it's for zero dollars. And I was like, I'm just trying to be honest, you know? <laughs> That's really... And then another lady in line starts chiming in. She's like, oh, it'll be on eBay in 10 years. It'll be like priceless and stuff. <laughs> so then I was like talking to people in the post office. Like, all right, I'll sell it right now. What do you guys want to bid for it? <laughs> we'll paint her another one. <laughs> yep. And so it was like this big to do in the post office. And they were like, no, we don't want it. Put it in the mail. And so I mailed it. Jennifer Boy, that in ended up being kind of a funny story. That was kind a great of. Story. It's a, it's mm. kind of funny. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. See, what we have here with those two stories is we have, this is a risk, okay? Yeah, let's yeah. talk about risk. Well, this I is- I like this, this topic. Yeah. So this is one one example, your story about modalism with the feminist creator, mm-hmm. redeemer, sanctifier. That's a risk. That's going <laughs> that on in the limb. to do with the topic. And you know what happened? Thousands of people were not baptized. Yeah, that's true. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, we have Rob, who goes to the post office here, old Juice. Mm-hmm. Not male. Well, he is a male slave, but juice primarily. Mm-hmm. Ontologically. Uh, ontologically, that's right. Juiceness. He goes out and takes a risk showing up at the mail po- at the post office with only a painting and zero materials to ship. We talked paint, about this we, we, last we time when we about. went to the post office. Yeah. Because I just went with a book. And this is the way we operate. You, Apparently, all three of us. Apparently, all three of us operate identically. Like, we just... It's ready, fire, car. aim, you know? Just get in the car with the thing you want to mail, go to the post office. I'm sure that's where they send things to other places. Hi. No, that's po- funny. That was my exact mindset. Because I wondered mm-hmm. how I was going to mail that thing. I tried to find an envelope for it the other day at, like, Target, and they didn't have anything. But, and so I just grabbed it, and I was like, well, I'll get to the post office where you mail things, and I'll figure it out. Well, and a way this does kind of relate, okay? So that these are mundane examples, but... It is kind of an outlook on life. Like some people will only do things when they're totally ready, when like everything's in order. And um, I think of, for instance, uh, Zacchaeus in the gospel where Jesus just sees him up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus could have been like, uh, maybe tomorrow, like me and my wife are going to clean up a little bit and you guys can, you can come over with your disciples then. But Zacchaeus was like, all right, well, Jesus is coming to my, to my house today. And something you said was that a long time ago, like the idea of trusting in a person enough that like, it doesn't matter exactly what they're doing. If they roll up in their car and are like, Hey, come on, get in. We're going to go do some stuff. You're like, well, I trust this person. So I'm getting in the car and I'm up, I'm down for anything. And I kind of felt that with seminary going into the seminary, you, I remember being at a, a panel once at a focus conference and Bishop Aquila was uh, Bishop of Fargo at the time. And he was on the panel and have I ever told you this story? Somebody asked. It was uh, it was for just guys. It was uh, about priesthood. Um, and there was some other priests on the panel, but the bishop was, he had the most gravitas by far. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked this kind of loaded question. He's like, um, how long after, you know, y- you stop like mortally sinning, would you say you're ready to enter the seminary? Like h- how long after like you've completely cut mortal sins out of your life will you know and we all know what he's talking about uh, probably you know you never really know but um 
Aquila's like, I'll take the question. And he just kind of sits there for a second and he's like, "Mm, how do I want to say this? Your question comes from the evil one. And it got everybody's attention. (laughs) And I was standing next to my buddy Pete uh, Makaitis, who was just up here visiting me, who were best buds in college and we were roommates and everything. We were kind of going through this discernment thing together. He didn't end up becoming a priest, and I did, but we were both considering it at the same time. Both of us were just like, whoa, I am all ears. Because he goes, you know, the devil is the accuser. He's the one that will tell you. You're not worthy of this. You'll never be worthy of this. And um, maybe one day, like if you keep trying, you'll get ready to like start the journey toward priesthood. But right now you're, you're not even close. You, look at you, you know. Uh, he says, you know, that answering a call to the priesthood is not saying, okay, I'm worthy. I must be called because you know, nobody is worthy. And that's an easy thing to say, of course. Like, I'm not worthy of being a priest. You guys aren't worthy of being priests, but we're called. And, you know, but an experience of that where you, you do, sometimes as a priest, you do, you feel your human frailty. And, like, you know, even in the confessional or preaching or whatever, you, you, where stakes are kind of high with what you say, like, you know, nobody's perfect in everything that they say. And, you know, sometimes you're hungry or angry or tired and, um, you're just not in a good mood and you feel like I, I can't do this job. You know, I'm not doing this good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly coming into the seminary, I, I was just like, I'm going to go to the seminary. I feel like I have to go. And I had no business being in the seminary, you know, and none of us do really, but particularly in your own, your own case, you know, the best that like, what the heck am I doing here? Honestly. And then you just go and you get in the car with Jesus and you're like, wherever we're going, I'm down, you know, and things happen once you take the risk, once you, that, that ready, fire, aim thing, like, okay, I know I have a hunch, so I'm going, you know, and you're not going to be perfect. You're going to miss a few shots, but you can, then you can focus your aim and stuff like that. But if you're always in the aiming and you see this sometimes with, I mean, we, we talk mostly about priesthood because that's our experience, but with discerners who are like, I don't know, you know, I have student debt or I, I don't know. You can come up with a million. There's and so one many excuses. ways you can there are. excuse yourself from and it. They're, and primarily they're legitimate. Right. You know, like, uh, yeah, that's. And I'm sure marriage, kids, like people, sure. people, right. you know, getting ready for these big stages in life. Like, I'd, I'd like to have a lot more money in the bank before we ever think about getting married or having a kid or anything like that. And, you know, I think about my brother who's somehow made it work with five kids and they just did it and it's like you know if you if you have to rewind the tape and you say like your life would have been more comfortable if you would had less kids well pick which one you know wouldn't exist you can't because they're all a gift you know and i think that that's just the way you look at life like you have to take these risks and you you can't be stupid about it you have to be smart and and prudent everything like that but um, that's a little bit what faith is, is it is a relational trust, you know, that you're not, your life isn't really in your hands. Relax. To maybe add um, another perspective on the idea of risk is I think today in, in our day and age, when we hear the word risk, you think of a spontaneous action, which in this, in this instance is what we're talking about in all these examples. Um, but I think 
if you were to ask most people like what a risky thing is that they did, you would look and see like you're talking about with the family or with priesthood. The risk that we're talking about is like uh, a massive life decision that um, involves some sort of massive commitment along with it. And so the risky thing today, like, yeah, I can remember, I, I mean, honestly, I can remember times in college where I was thinking like, dude, it'll be so risky. I'll be so spontaneous. And like climbing over a pool fence in the middle of the night and doing a backflip into the pool. I can remember doing that freshman year and thinking like, <laughs> whoa, that was so risky and spontaneous. Oh, man. Yeah. But like that's, you know, in a sense, anybody can do that. It's a it's a quick decision that has really no repercussions, except I cut my foot wide open on the top of the fence. But other than that, <laughs> but a really risky thing to do in our day and age is to commit your entire life to a person. That's super duper risky. Yeah. And so it's not what you would say is the stereotypical understanding of, man, let's risk I'm it. a risk taker. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Big risk taker. Investment strategy. You know, like, yeah. ooh, let's play these quick, you know, these quick games of, you know, making these big decisions. I, I mean, I honestly, I think it's much more risky in our modern culture to do exactly what you're saying. Commit your life to one person forever which it doesn't sound glamorous. I mean, it, it doesn't. And a lot of times it doesn't look gra- glamorous. Like right. you're talking about the family and all that stuff. But, um, I mean, I really I really do think that that's a riskier thing. Mm-hmm. Giving your life to be a Christian, that's super risky. Well, it's part of, like, any, any love is risky. Especially letting ourselves be loved. I think more than anything, like, always involves risk because the other person we don't know how they're going to respond or continue or um, whatever. But even to your point of like getting to what risk is, you know, things like very worldly things, I think can like point us to this truth though. And like they speak to us. So I think I might've honestly talked about this game before, but like I'm a big baseball guy. And I think of the best baseball game I've ever been able to see with my own eyes. I got to go to game two of the National League Championship Series in 2013. It was the Cardinals versus the Dodgers. The Dodgers pitched Clayton Kershaw, and the Mike, the Cardinals uh, pitched a rookie named Michael Waka, who was like 22 years old. Kershaw had just won two Cy Youngs. And it was like a matchup everyone thought like the Dodgers were um, going to just trounce this game. And there was something, and then Michael Walker, this 22-year-old kid, comes out and beats Clayton Kershaw in a one nothing game. There was a lot of risk, like, from the Cardinals in that. And I know it's very weak of, like, what we're talking to, but, like, as a Cardinals fan, as a baseball fan, that game was like a piece of art kind of unfolding between my eyes, like the mm. two coaches and the strategy. Um, and just, like, these guys that know how to play baseball at a very high level, like the intricacies of that game it was the it was the best baseball game I've ever seen played but there's something like even my dad and my brother were at that game too and we still talk about like Waka over Kershaw I remember when you went that was your first year I was I was in seminary when I went to that game it was down in St. Louis and um but there's something like an almost like magical quality about that game and obviously like there's background to it for me but like part of that is because of the risk, because no one thought that like Waka was going to win that game. And they're, you know, it's like unexpected and surprising and beautiful in a way. 
But like as we learn to, you know, as the scales kind of fall from our eyes and we're able to see Christ in these day-to-day things, you're right. Like the greater risk, the the glory, the manliest thing a guy can do is commit himself to another person he felt like God has put um, in his life. And that demands a ton of risk, like mm-hmm. throughout your entire life, because you're saying... You're staking your life on this. I'm going to stake my life on this promise, whether it's priesthood, whether it's... Um, you know, whether it's marriage or having a kid or another kid mm-hmm. or whatever, like you're staking your life that God's going to be able to sustain you mm-hmm. in that. Um, and it's, it's really awesome. But like that takes, I, I would go as far to say like that takes a Christian worldview to be able to really see the glory in that. Um, and and, to, it, and to it mirrors the, the glory of the whole, of the whole incarnation, you know, that, sure. that God is, incarnate in this tiny baby who's completely vulnerable to the elements born out outside to this virgin mother who's a young girl and this this guy joseph is in charge of making sure that he gets to egypt away from the the killer herod and all of the risks that that went on in his short life here on earth um and he continues to hand himself into the hands of the priests and, and the people in the Eucharist. And um, there's a certain openness of your heart, of an unguarded heart uh, in Christ that we imitate, where you are open to the slings and arrows of fate and being wounded by uh, people you love who will disappoint you and, and everything like that. That uh, the man on the cross is the man with the pierced heart who has become a fool because he's so in love, you know, like. I saw a good tweet the other day. What, what are, name one other God that washes feet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just unimaginable, and, and it's almost embarrassing how much he'll degrade himself because he loves us so much. Um, and our imitation of that is this risk-taking, like that, that, you know, I remember in sixth grade asking this girl out, and it was like, it was kind of a trauma because... This girl was way, way above my pay grade <laughs> at this age. And I didn't even know what it meant to like go out, you know, and I was in the lunchroom and I worked up my courage <laughs> and I was like, hey, so-and-so, do you want to go out? And she just looked at me like, oh, man, <laughs> <laughs> like now she has to disappoint me because we had, you know, been friends or whatever and I liked her and I just remember feeling so crushed. And not even knowing why or like what I was looking for exactly, but I like this person and this was what you do. You know, you ask them out. Um, but that just kind of to an nth degree, you know, as, as a priest to you, you make yourself really, really vulnerable. Um, and it can often look kind of dumb to people who don't get it. Like, well, why, do you, why would you do this? Um, but, you know, to your point about, for some reason when you were talking, Mike, I thought of this thing I heard Rusty Reno say, he's the editor of First Things, and he was given a talk down in Dallas about, um, well, just the, he's kind of a culture warrior. He's the generation before us, and a lot of those people, especially like First Things Magazine, is, you know, fighting for, like, religion in the public square and, and stuff like that. And and he said that at their magazine, they, they employ a Domin- someone from the Dominican House of Studies in New York every summer as an intern. And the Dominicans of that province wear their habits um, everywhere, including when they're working and stuff out in the world. 
and he says like they're you know they're right by Times Square at their office and they they'll go out to lunch you know with people from the office and the Dominicans with them and he says you look out in the streets of Times Square and these are the you know the individuals man like the edgy people we've talked about this before people with like tattoos all over their bodies spiked hair piercings all over the place their, their outfits and everything are like just representing their expressing themselves as an individual apart from society you know that i do not conform and he says that the people that the person of all of the people in the streets that gets the most attention or attracts the most stares is him in the in the dominican habit because he's expressing his individuality in a way um that's in the polar opposite direction because he's renouncing his individuality he's taking on this this clo- he's cloaking his own identity in the identity of this community of this order which is dedicated to Christ and that is truly countercultural and he's saying like all these people out here are trying to be countercultural but what ends up happening is they just get lost in the static of so many people trying to do the exact same thing mm-hmm. shock the senses or whatever and here he's like just this guy in a white robe and everybody's like what the heck you know which is also paradoxical because yeah, everyone, it's the whole modern move of just novelty and you know, like what you're saying, shock the senses, where he's actually doing that by calling to mind thousands of years of tradition. Right. You know, like the least new thing, you know. Yeah, exactly. Is wearing a religious habit. Less innovative. Right. And, and yet that is actually what is the vehicle. Mm-hmm. But so, so something that... And initially, when I when I when risk struck me, what I thought about was in my own life experiences where, like, okay, I can see where risk really hurt, or like I really put a lot into something, and then, uh, you know, it didn't come through exactly like I was thinking. Where even your story about the baseball game there is, in a sense, like, yeah, we can look at the individual game and see where players maybe took risks and coaches, and and there is immense beauty in that, which is certainly a part of it. But you can also look at it and say that those each of those players has risked their life. Like everything of their life has led up to this point of a baseball game trying to win the World Series. Yeah. You know? And I mean, I, what initially struck me was um, in high school, we went to the state championship two years in a row. And my senior year, we lost on a oh, buzzer good beater. good for you, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> wow. We. How long have you been waiting to this work is that the, in? <laughs> this is well. This is the first thing that I thought of was that in high school I invested like when a you ton. wake up in the morning every day. It, it was the, usually the second thing after the miracle <laughs> shot, of course. But there I invested is. a ton miracle of time shot. into basketball. Like I would come in before school and work on my jumper, and would be after working practicing for like three hours, uh, working on my on my dribbling, on my shooting, my passing, everything, and. My senior year, we went to the state championship and we lost by two points um, because I, we had a shot at the buzzer and the refs called it off at the last minute. Wow. And I can remember thinking, like, I put so much time. I put so much time and energy and effort into this, which it wasn't a huge, like, it was the most consistent thing in my life. So it was the opposite of, like, this spontaneous thing. It was, mm-hmm. the mo- it was one of the most solid things that I had done in, in school. Mm-hmm. And yet I looked at it and said, this was so risky. Like, how much time and energy in my life I put into this. And, but there was immense satisfaction in it. And I think that's why St. Paul's 
his urging of the Christian people using the analogy of training and mm-hmm. of he kind of dives at that sport analogy where you do risk your time and your life and your energy and yeah, what does he say like all these people are uh, training and denying themselves all sorts of things for a perishable crown and you right. are working for an imperishable crown right and that's I mean uh, of course it strikes very you know true and beautiful and at least practical for me but I had that same feeling of like you know what I we didn't win the state championship yeah that's fine but I really did give everything that I could here and in that total risk and total like giving of myself into this goal it didn't come out come out how I wanted it to but the things that came from me investing all that time into it the friendships the loves the coaches the parents the families that I had built because of that was incredibly beautiful Mm. and so just to see how and so imagine applying that to Christianity where this is a, a human aspect of life that is close to all of us sports but there's a certain like even in your story telling that there's an unguardedness mm-hmm. in it mm-hmm. like of how what you put into your like into that game to lead up to that game um you know you put you know at the time everything you had like for that game and yeah i'm sure there was like some satisfaction in knowing that you gave it your all and yeah you were you know a half second away from like no. accomplishing the goal of Ooh. yeah sorry to bring that up <laughs> get that time machine <laughs> yeah. um but it's kind of it, it called to mind for me the like the great story of saint ignatius when he's you know initially going through his conversion and, he, and one of the first things he notices before he writes the spiritual exercises or anything like like that but he notices that when he um like reads about chivalry and knights and things like that that it produces this feeling of like peace and excitement for a time but then when he read the lives of the saints it didn't go away it's like one of the very like foundational things that he notices in his own spiritual life um but i think we see that like as basketball or baseball or whatever as a total gift like to give us a glimpse into um this life because it allows us an avenue to like man, I think we see how hungry people are for that to like kind of unguard our hearts and just, you you know, how devastated were people when the Cubs didn't win the World Series in the Bartman year. Very. Um, but there's something still that like keeps them coming back like for that next year because I think we want our hearts to be unguarded. Mm-hmm. And this isn't like we need like proper human formation that we're not, you know, like wounding ourselves in unnecessary ways and things like that. But ultimately, like, that's where Christianity, I think, turns it on its head is exactly that. It's like Jesus was completely vulnerable on the cross. And what's, like, shocking to me pretty continually is that, you know, like, not always in my life do I bet on Jesus, but he continues to bet on me. And that's what's crazy. It's like day after day he shows up in the mass, in the tabernacle, like, in my life. And he's kind of bet everything, like, on his own, you know, heart that, like, I'm going to accept that grace we're gonna and that deliver. love from him. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's that's super risky. Um, but that, that's also really fun. Like, that's why we tell – so you can, like, look back with satisfaction on that, on that basketball game or, you know, we can sit around and, um, you know, my family can sit around and talk about Michael Waka – like going toe to toe and beating Clayton Kershaw 
in that game because it's just a glimpse of of that beauty yeah and you can see you know even as you were talking there I, I I was thinking about I have a cousin who lives in Nashville now and he he moved out to Nashville and he's an incredible musician yeah. like incredibly good and he's out there literally risking everything to make it big in the music industry um and you know he's he's struggling along and you know God bless him I hope he's doing well but what I what I think about is how much sense it makes to invest completely into Christ because in a sense yeah it's very risky to give your whole life for this one guy in whatever vocation that looks like and whatever that looks like in in your life um, but we have total evidence that everything else is going to go away mm. so it's like you I mean you can look at anything from music to sports to even from the smallest things of like you know, self-satisfactory pleasures. I I was really disappointed the other day. I realized that I can't eat infinite amount of chocolate and just like enjoy yep. large copious amounts of chocolate like I used to. I get sick of chocolate now, which I just realized. But like oh, I can't invest everything into chocolate anymore. <laughs> anymore. Like that, that can't satisfy <laughs> me like it used to. Mm-hmm. So we actually have evidence that these things are fleeting, right. that all of these things are contingent. But Jesus and God the Father... Like, they are immovable. They will never go away. They're always... So, in a sense, it is risky Mm -hmm. because he's the invisible God. And Jesus is the visible sign of the invisible creator of the world. But in another sense, it's the only thing that makes sense. So, I mean, I guess that points to... At least I see it as a bit paradoxical. It's like the only only thing worth going all in for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He is the only thing. He is the only thing. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Down, down.